0: This is the Valley's new talk show, The John Girardi Show, on Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. Bill Barr and the president exchanging barbs. Whose side are we on? Well, hopefully we can be on both of their sides. And I want to try to take this show to sort of explain what's going on between the president and Bill Barr to sort of explain that while, yes, the president has authority to do some of the things he does, he has authority to recommend things to the DOJ, he has authority to direct the DOJ. The DOJ is an extension of his authority. I think Bill Barr said something that was very sensible in his interview to the president and was making a, a very distinct point to the president. And I get the sense that the president... While he's not going to say you're right, I'm wrong, is going to listen to him, and I hope he does. You're listening to the John Girardi Show on Power Talk 96.7 AM 1400. All right, let's let's lay out what the controversy is here. We've talked about it a number of times on the show. I think the controversy is pretty much a nothing burger. Over the last week, Roger Stone has been undergoing this trial. Roger Stone was a Trump campaign associate in 2016. He was the target of investigations that took place as part of the Mueller probe. Robert Mueller was investigating whether or not the Trump administration or Trump himself engaged in illegal collusion with the Russians to unduly influence the 2016 election, and they found squadoosh. Now, as part of their investigation, they found a number of people in Trump's orbit who had done other illegal things. They uncovered evidence of other illegal things. Other Trump associates lied to investigators about various things. And those are various forms of obstruction of justice, of lying to criminal investigators. And so you see people like Paul Manafort and Roger Stone get charged with various felonies. Now, Roger Stone is not a good guy. And I'd also say that Roger Stone is a total lightweight, uh, intelligence-wise, and did a lot of stupid stuff, including Texting things to other witnesses, sort of threatening them to shut up about stuff or else. Which, by the way, if you're going to intimidate a witness, don't do it in writing. <laughs> that's my <laughs> that's my professional uh, legal opinion. Uh, for all of you uh, prospective witness intimidators out there, don't put it in a text message. Because they can find that. And then it's there forever. So... Roger Stone was a total idiot engaged in a lot of dumb, stupid activities that were illegal. And the debate centered around what kind of a sentence to give him. Not whether he's innocent or guilty at all. Everyone is acknowledging he did things that were wrong. The question was his sentence. What kind of sentence would the government, the Department of Justice, recommend to Roger Stone? Now, the prosecutors in Stone's case are assistant U.S. attorneys, okay? So in our federal, just like Lisa Smitkamp is the district attorney, you have in the various regions of the country guys who are set up, guys or gals, who are set up as U.S. attorneys. Lisa Smitkamp is in charge of prosecuting California state crimes within the region of Fresno County. U.S. attorneys are charged with prosecuting federal crimes in their various respective areas. Roger Stone is being prosecuted in the D.C. by the U.S. attorney in the District of Columbia. Okay, so there's one U.S. attorney who handles the District of Columbia and has a bunch of attorneys who work under him, just like Lisa SmithCamp is the prosecutor for Fresno County and has a bunch of prosecutors under her, all right? Many of the lawyers who are directly prosecuting Roger Stone used to work on Robert Mueller's team. They were members of his team. And most of the members of Mueller's team were these very aggressive, high-powered left-wing lawyers who really wanted to go after Trump. Mueller was sort of, in theory, in charge of the investigation. But as we saw from his congressional investigation, Mueller was clearly not running the show. Okay, From his congressional testimony we could see pretty clearly that Mueller was an old guy who clearly did not still have his fastball. He was in his day a great lawyer, the director of the FBI, a former Marine, but he clearly was not even familiar with the contents of his own report, the report that had his name on it. So it's clear that his subordinate attorneys, who were these very aggressive, really competent liberal prosecutors, they were the ones driving the show. Some of those prosecutors, after Mueller closed up his shop, They continued with certain prosecutions that were initiated by the special counsel, by Robert Mueller's office. So some of those attorneys are handling the prosecution of Roger Stone. Now, after someone's convicted, the defense, the parole agency, and the prosecution all make what are called sentencing recommendations. They go to the judge and they say, hey, we recommend, based on the federal rules that govern how long you sentence someone for federal crimes, and there's a big variation for how long you can sentence someone for federal crimes, and it's usually based on the person's prior criminal history and the nature of the offense they committed. The prosecutors from Mueller's team were clearly being really aggressive, and and I think it makes sense why. It's not great why, but I think it makes sense why. These guys were, and guys and gals, were angry and a little resentful that they didn't get the big fish, Donald Trump. And they have treated Roger Stone throughout this process uh, like he's stinking Osama bin Laden. Okay. Uh, Some of you may remember when Roger Stone was originally uh, arrested, they had like 80 gazillion federal agents uh, park their, you know, come into his house with automatic weapons you know, barging in like they were trying to take out, you know, like like they were SEAL Team 6 trying to take out Osama bin Laden. This is a 67-year-old man, by the way, who was like a former junior staffer to Dick Nixon, uh, who's in bad health, who's an idiot, who had not committed any violent crimes. He had, And so th- this notion that we're treating him like he's, you know, a, a terrorist or something was always kind of absurd. Now, in their sentencing guide, lo- in the sentencing recommendation that the DOJ gave, and let's—that's important to note—the intervention that Bill Barr made was not Bill Barr lowering Roger Stone's sentence. It was lowering a sentencing recommendation. Okay, the judge can set his sentence however he wants. This is just Bill Barr intervening to say, "We recommend." a lower sentence, not we give him a lower sentence. That's another important distinction that I think has been lost that I, I think even I failed to make very clearly in the last few days. Roger Stone was given a sentencing recommendation by some of these former Mueller team lawyers, a sentencing recommendation of seven to nine years. And it was based on the fact that he sent, quote, threatening texts to a witness telling him not to testify about X, Y, or Z. The witness himself wrote something saying, hey, it wasn't actually really threatening. He said something like, I'll kill your dog if you don't testify, but I never actually thought he was going to kill my dog. It wasn't that kind of thing. It's a far cry from between that and, let's say, a guy from the mafia threatening to kill your family if you testify about X, Y, or Z. That's why, you know, we have concerns in federal law about you know, people who engage in witness intimidation, you're actually intimidating a witness. So the Mueller team were treating him as if he were actually engaged in genuine physical threats as a form of witness intimidation. And based on that, a seven to nine year sentence recommendation makes sense. Now, because they were sort of in a different sort of chain of command, they were part of Robert Mueller's team initially, and then they sort of had this separately. It seems like there was just some mismanagement that they came out with the sentencing recommendation when the Department of Justice didn't necessarily want that recommendation. And this is the kind of these are the kind of discussions that happen in prosecutors offices all the time. Should we actually push for this? Do the circumstances merit that we push for a lower sentence? Bill Barr and the Department of Justice are not saying Roger Stone is a good guy, that his prosecution was unjust or that he is innocent. They're simply saying that a 67-year-old man in bad health who committed these kinds of nonviolent crimes, and nonviolent crimes that only he only is subject to prosecution for it because of an investigation that failed to actually find the thing it was looking for, which was illegal Russian collusion by Trump, that this guy does not need to go to jail for seven to nine years. That the federal sentencing guidelines actually would recommend something more along the lines of, like, three to four years. All right? That's all they're saying. They're saying he should still go to jail for three or four years. Now, it seems that if Bill Barr is to be believed, and, frankly, I trust him, Barr issued this recommendation before the president had said anything, and independently of the president saying anything on Twitter. But... Obviously no one on the left is going to believe Barr and they begin this brouhaha saying Trump ordered Barr to give to give Roger Stone a lesser sentence when again, he's not giving him a re- lesser sentence. He is recommending a lesser sentence. The judge is the one who will ultimately decide. Now I made this point on the show. President Trump has legal authority as the guy in charge of the executive branch and the, inve- the executive branch is charged with prosecuting The law, enforcing the law, prosecuting offenders. And because so because all of the U.S. attorneys who prosecute crimes, they are working with the president's authority by the president's authority. That's how they do their job. The president does have the legal authority to intervene in certain kinds of criminal cases. And, you know, frankly, President Obama did a lot of this stuff, which is why I think this whole story is so disproportionate. President Obama, the reason Hillary didn't get prosecuted is because of the ways in which Barack Obama sort of hamstrung the DOJ. He is the reason why. So it's not like what Trump, if Trump did this, it's not like it's unprecedented presidential interference. But I don't even think he did it. Now, Bill Barr comes on ABC News yesterday and gives an interview. In which he says, I really need the president to stop tweeting about cases that are in front of my department, federal cases that are in front of my department. I cannot do my job effectively with this constant background commentary chatter from the president about these ongoing cases because it affects my ability to do my job. Now, why why is Barr saying that? Well, there, there are two things operating. One, does the president have authority to direct stuff in the Department of Justice? Yes. But two, in order for the Department of Justice to be recognized as having legitimacy, it needs to be perceived as exercising the law, enforcing the law free from partisan constraints. Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be politically accountable. Yes, the Department of Justice is politically accountable. The president is the head of the Department of Justice and is politically accountable to voters. And if the DOJ does stuff that's wrong... The president is politically his rear end is on the line. So there's some political accountability that the president needs to maintain. But in order for the DOJ to be perceived for our law enforcement system in this country to be perceived as being fair and as passing out fair justice and not just being an avenue for the president to reward his friends and punish his enemies. There needs to be some kind of separation between the president and the DOJ. Now. Let me sort of show how this practically works itself out. Because the president commented on Twitter so much about Bo Bergdahl. Now, who all, I'm sure, show of hands to my radio audience, whom I can't see, how many of you all remember Bo Bergdahl? This was the guy who deserted from his platoon, uh, was picked up by the Taliban, and then eventually uh, the president had a prisoner swap with with the Taliban, not with the Taliban, excuse me, I think with Al-Qaeda, the president had a prisoner swap with them, got this guy back, and the guy was being prosecuted for desertion and and a bunch of other crimes that this guy committed. And and when you read the story of Bo Bergdahl, this guy acted like a total stinking putz. He was a complete idiot. He was mad at his command structure and decided to just go off on his own like he was some kind of superhero, got his rear end, captured, put thousands of U.S. troops at risk who are trying, who had to search to look for him to try to find him and rescue him. Um, I mean, the hell that he put people through, he jeopardized so many other people's lives. There were people killed, I think, trying to look for him. What he did was seriously wrong, and he was subject to some serious charges. Well, Trump commented on his case repeatedly in the form of tweets, said this guy should get the book thrown at him. And what happened? Well, the judge gave him a super light sentence. Why? Because the judge was terrified of the perception that he was just doing Trump's bidding. He didn't want, he wanted to maintain the appearance that he was executing justice fairly. And by Trump commenting, there was huge fear that he had tainted the jury pool. So because Trump comments on things, it influenced the outcome of justice it adversely affects Bill Barr and his attorneys under him, their ability to do their jobs when the president is commenting on it. And that's understandable. Look, Trump is not a lawyer. Trump has gotten to where he's gotten by tweeting a lot, by commenting on things, by sharing his reaction to things in ways that are similar to other people. And he accidentally, you know, and he says dumb stuff and he, occasionally and he's not smooth and he's not polished he's not a politician that's part of his political success okay I, I, I always say this on the show when I criticize the president look he's won one more presidential race than I have so there's only so much I can criticize his effectiveness but when it comes to the law this is a thing for that I think the president fails to understand and people fail, fail to understand his job is a legal job Whether he's a lawyer or not, his job is a legal job. Because he's the chief executive and the chief prosecutor. Look, if Lisa Smitkamp had various prosecutions in front of her and was going in front of news cameras and saying how rotten and dirty, what rotten, dirty scoundrels, the X or Y person she's prosecuting is, and tainting the jury pool and making all these public comments on things, she actually would do herself a disservice. Now, she can say limited things that don't, taint or affect the ability of her prosecutors to do her job, but she has to be careful about that sort of thing. The president is the same way. He can't just spout off on all kinds of things. And ironically, when the president comments on things, he winds up hurting the things he cares most about. And we'll talk about that after the break. I mean, there is a lot of the president's immigration agenda, for example, that has been derailed by him talking about stuff. So, Here's my thing. It pains me to see any possible disagreement between the president and Bill Barr because I think Bill Barr is the single best thing Donald Trump has ever done, is make him attorney general. Maybe not the single best thing, but he's certainly the MVP of Trump's cabinet. And I would hate to see this disagreement where I do agree with Barr. I would hate to see this leading to an ugly divorce, which has happened with a lot of other Trump cabinet officials. We'll be back with more on this topic on The John Girardi Show, Power Talk 96.7 AM 1400 and the iHeartRadio app. The new John Girardi Show on Power Talk 96.7 AM 1400. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Generally speaking, I am always Team Bill Barr. And I still am today with this supposed controversy between the two, between President Trump and Bill Barr. And I want to sort of emphasize a few things about this controversy. In the first segment, I was sort of explaining, you know, the president, by tweeting on lawsuits or prosecutions, that the Department of Justice is undertaking can wind up actually jeopardizing their effectiveness. And so it's this ironic thing, like when Bill Barr is saying to the president, I really wish he would stop tweeting about cases that we are undertaking. This is not Bill Barr saying, I hate the president, I hate the president's tweeting, and he's a total idiot, and blah, blah, blah. What he's saying is, when the president tweets about active litigation that the DOJ is undertaking... It can affect the outcome of these things, and it can affect the outcome of these things in a way that disadvantages even what the president wants, that it's actually counterproductive to what the president's trying to do. I already gave in the last segment the example of Bo Bergdahl. Because the president tweeted about it and tweeted about how he should get the book thrown at him, the judge gave this guy a super lessened sentence. And guess what? The president has the power to pardon people and mitigate sentences. He does not have the power to ramp up sentences. So because the president tweeted about it and talked to extensively about how Bo Bergdahl was a traitor and should be executed and have the book thrown at him, this led to a judge not wanting his jury pool to be tainted and really actively trying to give, because he thought the president was almost tipping the scales because of how he was talking about these things publicly and possibly tainting the jury pool, the judge wound up giving Bo Bergdahl a slap on the wrist. And, you know, so that is an example of the president, by tweeting, actively harming his own cause. And this has happened on a number of occasions, right, because of the way the president has talked Loosely and imprecisely about immigration, for example. I mean, look. Because of the way he has talked about immigration. Look, you you can have an argument till the cows come home about whether Trump was truly saying all immigrants are racist. Uh, excuse me. All immigrants are rapists and, and murderers or blah, blah, blah. Whether that's actually what the president said or meant you can whatever you, you can. We can debate till the cow comes home what true racism does or does not lie in Donald Trump's heart. The fact of the matter is that his public comments on these questions about the you know Mexican judge who a Mexican-American judge who at one point ruled against him and talking about very decidedly bringing up the judge's race and talking about that. He's clearly not super careful about it. And the fact is, when the chief executive who is charged with enforcing laws or the chief executive who issues executive orders, when he says stuff, that becomes evidence. That can become evidence in a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of what he is doing. His public commentary becomes evidence. And if you are challenging a an immigration law, let's say, And your challenge is that the president may not do this for arbitrary and capricious reasons, which is sort of the legal standard for these things. And uh, racism is an arbitrary and capricious reason for undertaking an executive action. It's an unlawful motive for performing such an action. And then you can cite chapter and verse where Trump is pointing out the race of this judge, like which is sort of inappropriately pointing out various comments that Trump has said that have been less than careful about immigrants. You can make a pretty compelling case. And that's why a huge percentage of President Trump's immigration agenda in the form of executive actions that he's undertaken. That's why a lot of it has not worked. It's because of his own words And I only say, I mean, I'm pointing this out as a lawyer and I'm not saying, look, this is not a condemnation of the strategy of Trump tweeting all in all. Look, as I said in the last segment, President Trump has won one more presidential race than me. Tweeting has been a big part of that. Developing his Twitter following, developing this enormous Twitter presence, getting his unvarnished opinion in a way that isn't slick and isn't, you know, coached and isn't, you know, uh, that. Frankly, a lot of his supporters like that he makes mistakes. They like the fact that he is rough around the edges and isn't a perfectly smooth politician. He actually, in some ways, talks like normal people do. And I recognize that's part of his, the attraction that he has for the Republican base. But there are some legal consequences to doing that when you are the chief executive. And I've talked about this on the show. Look, like, this Roger Stone thing is a nothing burger. I mean, it is a dispute about the DOJ, what kind of sentencing guideline it should recommend to the judge who's going to sentence Roger Stone. Should they push for seven years or three years? Okay, no one's saying Roger Stone is guilty of sin, but the president is helping his buddy and going to get him off scot-free through improper influence at the DOJ. No, no. It's recommending a three-year sentence for this guy who's been found guilty rather than a seven-year sentence in accordance with the law and with the federal sentencing guidelines, which help guide judges in making their sentencing recommendations. And judges have the discretion. If, if Look, all that's happened is the Department of Justice recommended to this judge, not commanded, not ordered, they recommended to this judge, hey, this is a 67-year-old man, he's in bad health. Yes, he sent, quote, intimidating text messages to people, encouraging them not to testify about things, but this is not a guy who is actually intimidating. The guy he allegedly, he intimidated, did not perceive it that way. Don't put this 67-year-old in jail for seven to nine years. Give him three years. That's what the sentencing guidelines recommend. And it's a question of, you know, changing an initial sentencing guideline. That's all it is. This is not like some... Now, it seems like there's some mismanagement and bungling that happened, again, because this was coming out of the Mueller investigation, and so you had kind of differing chains of command from what is normal. But at the end of the day, I just think this is a nothing burger of a story. But it does reveal this sort of tension that's in place between, on the one hand, Trump's genius at connecting with people which his tweets have a big part to do with that. His unvarnished opinion has a lot to do with that. His imprecision and just what people perceive as, quote, telling it like it is or telling it, you know, saying it the way he sees it. That is a big part of his attraction. On the other hand, I, and I realize I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the fly in the ointment here. I'm I'm the annoying lawyer, which that's, that's my job as a lawyer is to annoy people. I'm the annoying lawyer pointing out that there are legal consequences for that. And my hope is this. Look, I've been very vocal on this show about how much I love Attorney General Barr. Um, He's a devout Catholic. He's a brilliant lawyer. He's also, and I think this week has demonstrated, he's nobody's fool. All right. There's this perception on the left that Barr is just a lackey for Trump, his henchman just to do whatever he wants, regardless. And that, that can't be further from the truth. Barr... Need Trump needed Barr to be AG, I think, much more than Barr needed the job. We should note that Attorney General Barr, this is his second go-around as Attorney General. He already served once as AG under George H.W. Bush, had an incredibly successful legal practice afterwards. So let me tell you something. If if your resume says former Attorney General of the United States and anything else, you're doing fine. Okay, This guy didn't need to come back to government work. He did not need to come back to the DOJ. This is already an incredibly accomplished, successful, profoundly respected lawyer and gentleman. He didn't need this job, and he's not going to do things for Trump that are inappropriate. He's not going to do things for Trump that are illegal because he doesn't need this. He's not some grifter. Look, there are some people in Trump's cabinet who, you know, this is the best job they've ever had. Not Bill Barr, okay? He's had better jobs. (laughs) He's had probably much more lucrative jobs, and he's already been the AG once. He can leave anytime he wants. So I I actually think this is a great example of Barr, and he's probably told the president this privately, and the president hasn't changed his attitude, so this is probably why he, he decided to go public with this, telling the president, hey, if you keep tweeting about this stuff, it makes it really hard for me to do what you want me to do. As I said earlier, the Bo Bergdahl prosecution was submarined by Trump tweeting about it. Like, 100%. If Trump had kept his mouth shut about the whole Bo Bergdahl thing, Bergdahl would probably face a much more serious sentence than the one he got for deserting his platoon and, you know, putting so many American lives at risk when he abandoned uh, his post in Iraq and got immediately captured by al-Qaeda like a freaking idiot. So that's all. Uh, this is this is not like some horrid anti-Trump rant, and I, I really hope, you know, I know the president does not like people telling him no, and my deep sincere hope is that he keeps Attorney General Barr on, and that Attorney General Barr can serve for the rest of Trump's presidency, whether that's you know another year or another four years, uh, ideally. Um, Attorney General Barr is the MVP of Trump's candidate uh, cabinet, as far as I'm concerned, and he's. Uh, he has done an amazing job for the president in helping conclude the Mueller investigation. All of the good pro-life initiatives that the DOJ has initiated uh, through the Office of Civil Rights. I actually, you know, know some have friends of friends who who work for Attorney General Barr, uh, and he's a totally awesome dude. So that's that's my piece. On Attorney General Barr and that whole controversy. All right, when we come back, there's going to be an op ed in the Fresno Bee this Sunday written by yours truly. I'll give you all the details about it. You're listening to The John Girardi Show on Power Talk 96.7, AM 1400, and the iHeart Radio app. The Valley's new talk show, The John Girardi Show, on Power Talk 96.7 and AM 1400. So, on the Fresno Bee's website right now, and going to be in the print edition on Sunday, or in the print edition on Sunday, rather, uh, there is a an op-ed piece written by yours truly, yours truly, John Girardi. Uh, I have an op-ed piece that's, that the Bee has agreed graciously uh, agreed to publish about President Trump and his actions that he is taking against the state of California. Now, for those of you who don't know, the state of California is slightly pro choice. Slightly. <laughs> I'm sure this is a big news flash to all of you. Uh, back in 2014, the state of California was being encouraged, urged by Planned Parenthood to take some action against various large employers in the state, specifically various Catholic universities, uh, Santa Clara University. And uh, Loyola Marymount were their particular targets. And basically Planned Parenthood was noting that Santa Clara and Loyola Marymount in their employer-based insurance plans for their employees did not offer abortion coverage. And they thought this was terrible. How dare these Catholic schools, you know, try to follow Catholic teaching in some way, shape or form or live it out in in their, you know, employee hiring and compensation practices. It's almost like they're trying to practice their religion or something. Good thing the First Amendment only protects freedom of worship, not of uh, the right to free exercise of your religion. Oh, wait, it protects free exercise of religion. That's a little bigger than freedom of worship. Anyway, they comp- Planned Parenthood complained about this to the California Department of Managed Health. And as a result, in August of 2014, the California Department of Managed Health issued a bunch of letters to various insurers throughout the state, healthcare insurers, telling them, hey, Uh, we know that you have been offering insurance plans that don't cover abortion. You may not offer that anymore. Basically, California law requires that every insurance plan must cover, quote, essential services. And we are now redefining abortion as a, quote, essential service. And you may not give exceptions to it. So overnight... On August 22nd of 2014, a radical policy change was initiated in the state without a vote from the state legislature, without a vote in a popular referendum, without even a signature by the governor on an executive order. Simply with a series of letters, the California Department of Managed Health Care issued a radical policy change in California that every insurance plan sold in this state, even if you're an employer who's religious, even if you're an employer, who is pro-life, even if you're an employer whose only beneficiaries in your health care plan are a bunch of Catholic nuns, your health insurance plan is covering abortion. Now, this was also in violation of federal law. This federal law called the Weldon Amendment. The Weldon Amendment, which was passed under Barack Obama, basically says that if any state discriminates against health insurance providers or health insurance plans due to a failure to provide abortion coverage then that state forfeits a bunch of federal health care money that they are otherwise entitled to. Now, people complained about this to the Obama administration from 2014 to 2016. and They said, hey, Obama administration, California is violating this piece of federal law. They are discriminating against health insurance plans that don't cover abortion by preventing them from existing. And they're also getting all this federal health care money. You got to have one or the other. You need to enforce this law. And the Obama administration sat on its hands for two years and in June of 2016 issued a decision saying, nah, we're not enforcing this. Uh, They're not actually violating the law, even though they are clearly violating its obvious statutory wording and language. So with that, uh, with that, the Obama administration just basically neglected to enforce federal law. And so the... Trump administration is basically saying we are going to enforce federal law. California, you have 30 days to change your actions. So I deeply appreciate this move by the Trump administration, which is basically to say to California, if in 30 days you don't change course, you are going to lose all of this federal government funding. So if you want to read all about it, Uh, I encourage you, uh, as much as for some of you, the the thought of picking up a copy of The Bee is just revolting. uh, You can either go to the Fresno Bees website, go to the opinion section. You can find my column in there. Or also follow me on Twitter, at FresnoJohnny. I retweet it there, and you can uh, just get it there. Or just pick up a copy of the paper on Sunday. It might be protected by a paywall until Sunday, but um, hopefully you guys can pick it up and give it a look. All right, we'll be back with closing thoughts on The John Girardi Show. Power Talk 96.7, AM 1400, and the iHeart radio app. This is the new John Girardi Show. Power Talk 96.7, and AM 1400. That's going to do it for us on the John Girardi Show. But hey, there's uh, some exciting things I wanted to alert you all to. On Sunday, February 23rd, we're going to have another screening of the movie Unplanned at Maya Cinemas. If you want more information, you can get in touch with us at Right to Life of Central California at 229-2229 or email us at info at rtlcc.org. Sunday, February 23rd at 245 PM. I will be there. It will be good to see you all. Also, we've got some other great things we're doing at Right to Life for Central California. Keep keep it tuned to the John Girardi Show and don't miss Right to Life Radio with me, John Girardi, 9 to 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, right here on Power Talk 96.7 a.m. 1400. That's going to do it for us. I will see you guys later.